It's tragic, really. We all have a story. A dark secret wrapped in emptiness and regret. You know. The Toll. I'm Nancy Simpson. The town we start off in is tucked away in the Ozark Mountains on the Missouri side, Ava. As you go outside the heart of that small town, it becomes sparse quick. Hills, trees, and dirt roads that lead to who knows where. Anywhere you go around those parts, well, it's secluded. And that's the case for the Eagles Lodge, the scene of a murder there in that small town. The building sits in a bit of a clearing but is surrounded by a forest and darkness. Real darkness at night. Any other time after that abduction and murder? Well, it's another darkness that's measured by how you feel, not by what you see with your eyes. A man who people trusted, who appeared to be a helper by day and a serial killer by night. A man who was known as quiet, who kept to himself and tended to those who were wounded. Yeah, that guy. And one woman held onto his secret for years. How much did she really know? Why didn't she come forward? What other victims are out there? Killer unknown. Answers vanish just like the woman working at the Eagles Lodge. And that's where this story starts. The Toll, Unsettled. It's the middle of March, 2007, the 13th to be exact, a Tuesday night. Renee Williams was a bartender at the Eagles Lodge along Highway 14 in Ava, Missouri. It's a small, rural town, population a little over 2,000. Renee put away the night's receipts, tucked them into a safe, called her boyfriend of 13 years to let him know that she was on her way home, locked up the building, and vanished. Christopher Revac, now labeled a serial killer by many, was there that night. He lived in that Ava area and was an EMT for a nearby county and had worked as a volunteer firefighter. People described him as well-liked, reliable, mean, vicious, deadly. Those words didn't come to mind when you asked people who casually knew Christopher Revac. That was 2007. Krista Gase was elected into the sheriff's seat in January 2009, so two years later. One of his campaign promises was to solve this case. What happened to Renee Williams? Remember, DeGase inherited this case, so everything he talks about prior to 2009, he's read from case files. That's important to remember. Uh, they kind of viewed it as maybe she had left uh, with, with friends or someone from the bar then the next day when she didn't show up and her family couldn't locate her, uh, then I think that's when they really began digging into it. There was some evidence found at the scene there. There was some blood uh, on the concrete. Then they began interviewing the patrons that had been at the establishment. Uh, it is a private establishment that people are required to log in when they come, sign in. So they started going through that, talking to people that had been at the bar to uh, try and determine who, who was at the bar that night. And pretty early on, it seems like Revac was on a short list. You know, he was. I mean, as I went back and looked through it, you know, they were on the right track uh, in the very beginning. Um, you know, his name had came up. He was a person of interest. And they actually had a deputy go to his house shortly thereafter and interviewed him. He had an injury to his hand. He stated he'd slammed his hand in the door. And then for whatever reason, it, the investigation with him just kind of died right there. DeGay started going through the thick case files. 
This disappearance now two years old. I went back through the reports, started reading all the reports. I looked and seen what, what we had, what may have been overlooked. And actually, I mean, in the very beginning, you know, they had seized his vehicle, and they were able to find some blood uh, in the vehicle that did come back, and it did test positive for Renee Williams's blood. I believe the blood at the scene ended up testing back to Chris Revax. Was that initially, with the initial investigation? Yes, absolutely. So when, you, when you opened the book, mm -hmm. you saw that this was his blood, this was her blood. Yeah, absolutely, and her blood's in, her blood's in his vehicle. So at that point, you know, I was kind of baffled why things, and I still don't know to this day kind of why things had stalled out at that point. Um, I think really the reason was because they didn't have a body. You know, I mean, they didn't have a body. Uh, the old uh, adage that if you don't have a body, you don't have a murder, you know, and that's just not true. Um, I think that's kind of why it, why it died out in the beginning. So they didn't have the body of Renee Williams. So DeGase thought this is where he needed to start. There was too much evidence pointing straight at Revac right off the bat. Blood evidence placing an injured Renee with an injured Chris Revac. There's no doubt that, that Chris Revac was uh, a person of interest in this. He was there, her DNA's in his vehicle. Um, so I started doing a little digging on him and seeing what I could find on him. And as I ran his background information, I'd seen that he was from the Wisconsin Rapids area. There was an area in Ohio that he was from. So I started, uh, honestly, I did a Google search, women abducted from bars in Wisconsin Rapids. And when I did that, I popped up a story of Deidre Harm in Wisconsin Rapids. And as I opened up and, and flipped through that, that report, lo and behold, there was a composite drawing of Chris Revac. When you looked at that picture, mm -hmm. you saw him? Yes, absolutely. I knew it was him, without a doubt. As soon as I looked at it, I knew it was him. At that point, I probably jumped the gun a little bit. You know, I called Wisconsin Rapids and said, hey, I think I know who your guy is. Uh, immediately, they were wanting to come down and, and do an interview with him. I'm like, hey, I still have a case here. I'm trying to wrap up on him. And they asked me, they said, can you place him in Wisconsin Rapids uh, during the time of Deidre Harms' disappearance and abduction? So what I did is I went back and I contacted his employer and I got employee records. And lo and behold, he was on vacation in Wisconsin Rapids at the time Deidre Harm was, was uh, abducted and murdered. Yeah, Deidre Harm, June 2006. A young mom out for a night of fun in Wisconsin Rapids, Wisconsin, where Chris Revac grew up and was visiting during that time frame. The Investigation Discovery Channel did a piece on Revac and these two women a couple of years ago. It's called Last Call in the Dead of Night series. We'll have the link to that show on our website, thetollpodcast.com. Anyway, they spoke with a retired officer who investigated Deidre's case in Wisconsin. He talks about being at the same bar where she was having fun. He was celebrating with some other patrolmen. They remembered seeing Deidre there that night. She was having a good time with a friend who told officers when he left the bar, Deidre, was talking to a man, and other witnesses described the same man. The next day, she didn't pick up her baby. A sketch was eventually made of this mystery man. While watching Last Call, you learn three months after Deidre's disappearance in Wisconsin, her mom finds a letter in her mailbox. It says something like, I'm so sorry about Deidre. I didn't mean to. Childlike handwriting, cryptic message. She turns it over to police, but no prints and no new leads. Remains were found by some hunters six months later. They were confirmed to belong to Deidre Harm on November 21st, my birthday. To this day, Deidre's sweet friends keep a Facebook page. It's called, We Will Never Forget Deidre Harm.
Back in the Ozarks in Ava, Missouri, Sheriff Chris DeGay says as he cracked open the case files and started digging into Renee Williams' disappearance, like he said, he literally Googled women abducted in Wisconsin Rapids, Wisconsin. And boom, Deidre Harm. The sheriff here in the Ozarks has no doubt Christopher Revac was Deidre's killer in Wisconsin. Now, authorities can't completely close that case, but they're Correct. pretty sure. Like, yeah. And different agencies have different policies and procedures as far as, as able to, being able to close out a case. But, you know, I think when you look at the totality of circumstances and you look at the fact that, one, he was in the bar that night. He was in Wisconsin Rapids. We were able to prove he was in Wisconsin Rapids through his work records. We were able to prove that he ended up staying later in Wisconsin Rapids, called into work and say he needed a couple more days uh, to stay. An emergency had came up. You know, and then, of course, the interviews that they did uh, there in, in the Wisconsin Rapids. You know, there's no doubt in my mind. And you look at the composite drawing of the people that she, of him that they said she was with in the bar that night. Absolutely no doubt. You said you took one look. One look. That was it. That was it. Sheriff DeGay says he also has no doubt Revac was a serial killer. My concern with it is, and in the position that he had, is that I don't believe that Deidre and Renee are, are his only two victims. He's in a position where he comes in contact with a lot of women. Um, many times on that ambulance, you know, whether they're a victim of domestic violence or an, an assault, you know, sometimes very vulnerable women. And I don't believe that these were his first first two victims. And I had reached out to several other agencies and advised them of, of our findings here. There was a news reporter that was abducted during that time. I provided those those agencies that information. I don't think anything ever came of them. But I just can't believe that he's in a position of contacting people, particularly females, and then one, obtaining their trust. You know, as a paramedic, if he was to provide aid to a female, you know, I would think that if he went back, they wouldn't be alarmed at all if he was to walk back to say he was checking on him or something. I don't know. I just, I have no proof of that. That's just my speculation. The sheriff is referring to Jody Husentrout, the news reporter in Iowa who went missing in the early hours of June 1995. She told a fellow colleague she was on her way but never arrived. There were signs of a struggle outside her apartment, but no real clues. It remains unsolved. And there were many others that fit this M.O. And then I would just reach out to that agency and provide them with the information that I had and see if his name had even came up in it. And, and, and the, of course, we're talking several years back, and a lot of those agencies, you know, some of them couldn't find the records. Some of them were, you know, we know who done that, but and it wasn't him. But we haven't made an arrest yet. So uh, basically, I just tried to reach out to them and uh, share the information that I had. At the time of Revac's arrest, local media brought up another woman, Crystal Ehrensdorf, last seen around closing time at a bar in 2001, also in Iowa, a state where Revac's ex-wife once lived. Douglas County Sheriff DeGay says he knew Chris Revac, would say hello to him if he passed him on the sidewalk, but had never worked with him directly. DeGay says he did know and was friends with Chris Revac's wife, Johanna. She was an EMT at the time of Chris's arrest, but in the past, at the time of Renee's abduction two years earlier, she had worked as a 911 dispatcher for the Ava Police Department. Kevin Tweedy is the team commander for the Missouri Disaster Response System and Missouri's Medical Fatality Management. 
A huge tornado, a terrorist attack, the state calls Kevin and his team to help overwhelmed hospitals. They even help on the medical side with huge stadium concerts. Now, back in 2007, when Renee Williams went missing from the Eagles Lodge in Ava, Kevin Tweedy was the director for the Taney County Ambulance District in southwest Missouri, a county over from where Renee was taken. Kevin knew Chris Reback. Kevin was his boss. Kevin says Chris kept to himself. Uh, Chris was just a very quiet individual. We never really had any trouble with him. He, he was a good EMT for us as far as that. Uh, he always requested Doe to work in the Foresight Station, which was a uh, rural outlying station, which was just away from people more. And um, so, and, and he could do 24-hour shifts there. So he'd come in, do a 24-hour shift, and he could be off for several days. He was an EMT, did his, his, a good job that he never really seemed to want to go anywhere else, like become a medic or anything. He was content on being an EMT. And his partners never had any problems with it. They just said he was always quiet to himself, pretty much. You know, they, at the station, you'd have 24 hours with him. He would just kind of be to himself, per se. He just wasn't a chatty bunny like everybody else, you know, intermingling. He just kind of did his own thing. I know with us, when he would come over and do training, or I'd, I would go to the stations and, and work with him, usually he, he'd be opposite of where they were upstairs. And I think that's why he liked it, because he could separate himself from uh, versus coming over to the main station or one of the other stations. They only had one location where everybody, you had to hang out in one area. Up there, it was just kind of unique because you had an upstairs and downstairs. It had sleeping upstairs and sleeping downstairs. So you could totally be separated from the other person except on a call, you know, or when you're going to get food or something. You really didn't have to intermingle with them too much. I think the only trouble we got is we went into a no smoking policy and he was a smoker. And I think we had to talk to him about that a few times, you know, because just stuff. But as far as his work habit, he he did it. And, you know, he wasn't like crazy good. He just did his job, come in, did it and left. Kevin, the former boss, says there was only really one comment that might have tipped somebody off. But still, you don't suspect murder. I know his partner, which is Becky, and Becky's not around anymore, but... She just said, for we knew what it, uh, he was arrested and stuff, that he was just really creepy. And that's what she goes, he's just been real creepy lately. And I'm like, what's creepy? And she goes, I don't know how to describe it. He's just been really creepy. He just kind of got a cold look and he's just, he just, uh, doesn't talk at all. And she goes, it's just creepy. And, um, you know, because they would, in Forsyth, at that station there, they're by themselves. So it was just, it was him and a, and his main partner was Becky at the time, and it was a female. And uh, she just felt, uh, you know, several months there, I just remember she just said he just creepy. And that, you know, I can't get rid of a guy because he's creepy. He wasn't doing anything. He wasn't saying anything. She just had a weird vibe about it. For reference, Forsyth, which is right next to Branson, Missouri, is 31 miles from Ava going northeast. It's two-lane, a hilly, curvy, secluded drive, parts of it through the Mark Twain National Forest. Can I make it sound any more desolate? <laughs> it's just really country. Looking back now, the only thing that was different during that time frame that Kevin can remember was that Chris and his wife, Johanna, who also worked for the ambulance district, now an EMT, took quite a bit of time off. 
he took off and went out of state with his wife a couple times, you know, and, and um, used all of his sick and vacation time, if I remember right. Then, um, and, and outside of before that, he didn't didn't seem to do a lot of that, you know. Johanna had a secret she kept for nearly two years. Once Sheriff DeGase was elected into office in 09, his mission was to solve Renee's case, knowing full well Chris Revac was the main suspect. I kind of looked at things and felt that the person that I needed to speak to probably the most was his wife. I felt that, you know, with her being married to him, you know, she had to have some information. And I tried to call and, and speak with her, and, and he intercepted the phone call. And I think that kind of put him on the defensive a little bit. Anyway, we figured out a way to uh, get her out of the house and get her to another location where I was able to talk to her and, and begin interviewing her. And speaking with her, of course, she was terrified. And uh, the question came up was, why didn't you come forward with any information with the previous sheriff? And she said she had very little faith in the previous sheriff to keep her protected. And um, She did believe that she was living with somebody who could have murdered. Absolutely. She knew she was. Shortly after... The deputy had interviewed Chris Revac at his residence. I believe it was the next day. Chris Revac forced Johanna to come to a location on the property where he forced her to actually help him load the body of Renee Williams in a vehicle. Um, so she knew she was living with a murderer. He told her that not only if she said anything, that not only would she end up like that, but her, her mom and her sister would end up like that. And so for two years she's living with him. Mm-hmm. Scared to death. Absolutely terrified. And... Um, when I was running for office, I seen her on the streets and I shook hands with her and she said something to me. She looked at me and she says, I hope you win. And it was just kind of odd the way that she said it. And so I kind of felt that, you know, that, that at some point during this investigation, I'd be able to form a connection with her to, to, to hopefully, uh, help extract the information from her. And she did. She spoke with us, but she gave disclosure about what she knew, things that he had told her. And it led Sheriff DeGase to some property more than an hour north of Ava. She was able to give a very descriptive location that where Chris had indicated he had buried Renee and described that area to me the night that I talked to it, her mom and her sisters. And we left midnight, one o'clock in the morning. We left and we were headed to this area that's about an hour and a half from here. And of course, we had people watching the, the residents and everything uh, that Chris was at. I mean, we traveled to this area located everything just as she had described. And for days, uh, myself and the Highway Patrol, uh, numerous cadaver dog teams, we tore that place apart. And so most of it was digging. Uh, the information that we had is that he had buried her there. Uh, we ran cadavers. We searched the property. We grid searched. We dug lagoons out. It was an old uh, farm that had a house, uh, previously it had a house on it. And um, we were unable to find uh, any of Renee's uh, remains. But with the area that we were in, there's no doubt that with the description that Johanna knew that, because he had taken her there. He had taken her, said, this is where I, this is where I buried Renee on this property. To me, it was very powerful. We spent days and weeks there looking at this place. With her statement, we were able to get a warrant for his arrest for murder. As I was in Polk County, uh, my deputies took him into custody. I came back, I gave him his, his warrant, um, advising he was under arrest for a murder. I didn't tell him what murder intentionally. Uh, he said he wanted his lawyer, so. And so that was the end of questioning.
asked Kevin Tweedy, head of the ambulance district at the time where Chris Reback and his wife worked, about Johanna. Then they started diving in more to his wife. You know, what has she worked? How much did she take off? Did they work together? Were they? Has she been acting odd? And his wife, she was, which was odd, his wife uh, was uh, supposed to be like a black belt and and uh, karate and and she was a bigger gal not big as in real big but if she grabbed a hold of you you'd probably know it and Chris was a smaller guy so we always are like you know we know who wears pants in that family because she'd kick his butt you know and uh, and she was I think she used to be in the military so she just had that vibe about her just being kind of a gruff uh, person anyway uh, she was good EMT too if you would see them together or when they were together and stuff, like she was the dominant one and he wasn't. Kevin, being a suspected killer's boss, well, he talks about the first realization that Chris Revac could have murdered another woman in Wisconsin. I think that probably creeped us out more than anything because we knew he had taken trips out of town several times. I don't remember how he, he I think he told us, you know, that he'd go or his, his wife... I think it was his wife on him because he never would say anything, but she'd say, oh, we're going up here to see family or we're going up there. I think if I remember right, his family or her family, one lived out of state, so they were seemed to be always going over there. And then, So, yeah, that was kind of, that was real weird for us to find out, oh, my gosh, and, you know, he might have been on his time off going to do that, and then he'd come back to work. And, you know, he could just come back and not be real different like I said, he was quiet. He wasn't any quieter. He wasn't doing anything else, but he'd show up to work and, you know, not like he was out front pacing back and forth or seemed like he's worried about anything. He'd watch TV and do normal stuff. So you're like, wow, how could you have that on your, <laughs> on your mind, you know, and, and uh, then just come back. And I think anybody else would just, it'd be a nervous wreck, you know, always looking over his shoulder, thinking something, but didn't seem to bother him a bit. And he had to interact with law enforcement all the time. So it was uh, it was weird. Renee was with Tim Brooke for 13 years. And as I've said, the couple had two children together, raising three children. I reached out to Tim for this project. He was nice to me on the phone, but said he'd have to think about it. He asked me if I'd seen the investigation discovery piece, and I told them that I had. That was hard for him to do, of course. He was crying as they filmed, saying how much he missed her, talking about searching for her. And he did not call me back for this interview. I understand. I picked this story because of Tim. I was working on a weekend. Tim came to the radio station, KTTS in Springfield, Missouri, where I worked as a news reporter to drop off a flyer. This would have been an hour and 20-minute drive from Ava. KTTS is a heritage radio station known for news, weather, traffic reports, and country music. I remember meeting him at the front door, him handing me the flyer and begging me to get the story out on the radio. He looked sad and so tired as he told me that she had three kids she would never leave. He was sure she was in trouble and he was looking for help. You remember stuff like that. The look on his face, the cracks in his voice. And he was right. There had been trouble. I did not press him when he did not call me back to do this interview. When you watch the segment on the TV show, Tim talks about going on a search of the barn near the Eagles Lodge in 2007. Trained dogs followed Renee's scent, leading them to the abandoned structure. 
but nothing. Tim was told without a body, authorities wouldn't be able to prosecute. Renee's sister, Shawnee Hansen, lives in the Pacific Northwest. She says the family grew up there, and then Renee ventured to Missouri years ago. We grew up in Oregon, and her, the father of her, her oldest son, um, they, his mother lived out in Missouri, and she ended up moving out there with Vince. And I, it was less than a year when they split up and she met Tim. Tim, being Renee's boyfriend for 13 years and the father of her other two children. Shawnee says she liked him enough, didn't really know him very well since they lived so far away. But hey, Renee loved him. Shawnee says Renee and her were a year and a half apart. So growing up, they were very close and remained close, even though there was distance. We talked probably once a week. Um, We didn't see each other for long periods of time. You know, we were long distance like that was was a real hindrance you know neither of us had the money you know for plane tickets and stuff back and forth for families i have three kids also yeah we talked all the time their brother moved to missouri close to renee when you ask shawnee about renee oh you know here's <laughs> she was she lit up a room honestly she loved attention and she was just, she was real bubbly. We were the complete opposite. Shawnee says the topic of safety at Renee's job came up during a few of their weekly calls. You know, I, I do remember her complaining that when she closed, there was always supposed to be a second person there for closing. And she was always having to close by herself. And she complained about that a few times to me. So I know she complained about it to other people also. Shawnee says she first learned something was wrong that Wednesday when Renee didn't come home. Yeah, Tim had called my brother because he didn't know how to deal with with us, I guess, out here, my mom and myself. So um, my brother called and told me, and then I called Tim. Tim just told me what he knew, and my coworkers actually got me a plane ticket, and I flew out the next day. Oh, that was very sweet of them. It was. So it's on the record. Because her and Tim weren't married, they wouldn't let him make any decisions. So a lot of the stuff, the searching, and there was a lady that raised police dogs, Belgian Malinois, out there. And she had asked the sheriff if she could use her dogs to search, and he told her no. The National Guard had called up and told them that they have, I think it was said, 150 guys that they could help search. And the sheriff told them no. And when I got there on Friday, the lady with the dogs contacted me, and I was the closest next of kin, so I gave permission. Shawnee says some of that delay, because Renee and Tim weren't married, it was frustrating. 13 years, and they wouldn't let Tim, you know, answer or request anything or give approval for anything. Yeah, that was really frustrating. And then the sheriff at the time, he wasn't really interested. He told Tim and his brother that she was probably at a drug house. And they replied with, okay, you tell us where and we'll go kick the door in. And he didn't start the search until Saturday, I believe. When Friday night, when I got there, there was probably about 300 people um, at the Eagles that were doing the search on horses, on foot, by car, on four-wheelers. The sheriff showed up 
I think it was more to, you know, calm the crowd than to do anything. I think it was the next day on Saturday when he finally brought in um, dogs from the prison in the next county. Shawnee says after the search Friday night, she went right back to helping in the search for Renee the next morning. Saturday, um, I had a rental car, so I spent the next four days. I just drove around and I handed out flyers. I went down to Arkansas. I just, I went, I did 2,500 miles on that car, just putting out flyers and um, truck stops. I can't believe how many truckers would stop and ask me for a handful of flyers to distribute. She talks about going on the search with the dogs, the same one Tim was on, to an abandoned barn down the way from the Eagles Lodge. Yes, I was with the lady, and they tracked her, sent into the barn. Um, I just remember there was like some big, I think it's like with syrup and, and stuff like that comes in, big plastic game things. But um, it didn't, the lady said it didn't leave from there. And she gave us reasons why. She said it was either because she was dead or she was probably more than likely wrapped up in something that she left there. Next time on The Toll. And you look into his eyes and and it's cold. She bit the tip of his finger off and he choked her to death. He didn't mean to kill her at that time, but she was fighting too hard. Had no idea this guy could be a serial killer or you know, doing that type of stuff. You, you wouldn't have known it. There were things that, that happened that night. I could see the wheels turning. She sat there every day knowing what, what happened to my sister. No doubt. No doubt in my mind that we have the right guy. The Toll Podcast, Unsettled, is a production of The Toll LLC. Co-creator and host, Nancy Simpson. Co-creator and executive producer, Jay Lashley. Technical producer and audio editor, Kat Morgan Gaines. Marketing manager, Pamela Shelby. Web design and digital creative director, Shelby Powers. Original music by Jay Lashley. Reproduction or use of any part of this broadcast without the expressed written permission of the Toll LLC is prohibited. You can see pictures related to Unsettled at thetollpodcast.com. If you enjoy the Toll, subscribe, rate, and share.